Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, this is Danielle Karapkin speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario, from Beth Avram Yosef of Toronto. We are studying Morena Vuchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. Um, I hope everyone is well. And we are going to be starting, we've been doing this for quite some time, so we are in the third and final section of the guide. Uh, we are starting today Chapter 9, um, and we have been in the midst of a discussion of God's providence and God's interaction with our terrestrial realm. That is really the overarching theme of the third section of the guide. And as we mentioned last week when we studied, um, in the last two weeks when we studied chapter eight, where the Rambam uh, engaged in a discussion of the material world and how the material world is the cause of all corruption and destruction within man and within our terrestrial existence. Um, we mentioned that the Rambam is, is about to lead us in a, on a pathway to try and explain how flaw, defect, and evil, we'll have to define that word evil a little bit better, probably not today, but probably in our next discussion together, why that exists and how that can exist as an emanation from a perfect, unchanging, uncorruptible God. Okay. So um, the Rambam in chapter eight had really dedicated himself to explaining how really those the, the, the part of creation which is formal, that means that it has form um, without matter is completely unchanging and perfect. The only thing that is responsible for corruption and breakdown of things that, that get sick, die, fade away, lose their, um, lose their composure, that's because of the influence of the material on those things and objects and, and organisms that we see in our world. So that was the first thing that the Rambam had taught us about matter. Matter is the source of all breakdown in our existence. Uh, I'm going to share my screen with you now because we're going to be learning a very short chapter, chapter nine today, and then we're going to begin, which is really a, a very important chapter, chapter 10, on the existence of evil. So let me share my screen with you. I hope that everyone uh, can see that. As we mention every time, or almost every time, the uh, handouts that we give uh, for the presentation of the Shi'ur uh, can always be found in two places. One is in the Facebook group Shi'ur in Morena Vuchim, uh, which I invite you to join if you haven't joined it yet and you're on social media. And the other one is, uh, the other place is webyeshiva.org, which is the host of this, uh, of this shir, as well as many other classes and shiurim that uh, you should find very, very enjoyable and very uh, elucidating. So the first part is chapter nine, matter as a veil that prevents us from seeing. So in the previous chapter, we learned about matter as being the cause of corruption and destruction of all things. In this chapter, we learn a new aspect of matter that it obscures our comprehension of that which is separate from matter as those things truly are. And of course, we call that form in our Aristotelian terminology that we've been using throughout the guide because the Rambam is a staunch Aristotelian. And um, uh, uh, the things which are separate from matter are the only things that are really permanent in our existence. God falls in that category. Angels fall in that category, celestial intelligences fall in that category, 
Um, and therefore, the, 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 we are at a disadvantage if we live in a material realm and we are governed by part of ourselves being material in that we lack a full comprehension. And the, that's really what the Rambam starts his chapter with, and that's the undercurrent of the entire chapter. This is true even of the most noble of matters, specifically the celestial matter. If you recall, um, the Rambam had subscribed to Aristotle, who had believed that there are two types of matter that exist in the universe. Um, the lower form of matter is what we uh, encounter, which is a combination of the four base elements of earth, wind, water, and fire. Um, and there is a higher element, which is in the celestial realm, which is a more of a more ethereal nature. That will, that's what we would call a superior or more noble form of matter. But anything that is linked to the material realm, even the celestial material realm, will prevent us or, um, uh, yeah, will prevent us from being able to see things or understand things as they really are. We thus cannot properly comprehend God or any celestial being or intelligence that is divested from matter. Now, the, the Rambam points out that the prophets speak about this metaphorically, and he underscores that it is important not to take the metaphor too literally, and we'll explain why in just a moment. But the first example that the Rambam gives is from the book of Tehillim, two examples from the book of Psalms, Anan va'arafel sivivav, that God is surrounded by a cloud and a dark cloud. And in Psalms chapter 18, Yashet choshech sitro, that darkness it surrounds or uh, enshrouds God's hiding place. So it almost, it, it, you know, what you would say is that it um, it depicts God as sort of like the, the great wizard behind the great cover, behind the cover that prevents us from seeing him. Now, uh, the, that's the part that we can't take literally as we're going to see in just a second. The cloud cover is not covering God. The cloud cover is covering us. But the prophet speaks metaphorically because in order to allow human beings to appreciate the idea that God is shrouded in mystery. Um, at the time of the giving of the Torah at Ma'amad Har Sinai, in Parshat Yitro, in the book of Exodus chapter 19, God says to Moshe, I'm going to come to you and to the nation in a thick cloud cover. And in Deuteronomy, Chapter 4, Parshat Va'et Chanan, where it reviews the events that happened at Mount Sinai. It says, Ve'ahar bo'er ba'esh adleiv ha'shamayim. The mountain was on fire, um, going, and the fire went up to the heart of heaven. Choshech anan va'arafel shrouded in darkness, cloud, and dark or thick cloud. So all of these mean that man's access to comprehending God is limited, not that God is spatially surrounded by an opaque cover, since obviously God cannot be spatially confined. God is not spatial. And therefore, when we say that God is surrounded by a cloud, it's really a misnomer. It's only for the prophet to provide us a metaphor, um, uh, but really it's we who are covered with a cloud. I have to tell you, when I've read these lines, my, my image, the image in my mind, came back to one of my earliest memories of flying on an airplane. I must have been eight or nine years old. And... Um, it was on a cloudy day that we lifted off our, our 747 and then flew through the clouds. And all of a sudden, it wasn't cloudy anymore. It was very sunny. 
And it's one of those things that we take for granted now, but this seems to me what the Rambam is describing. In other words, our perception of reality, if we were to stand here on the earth, is to say, oh, the heavens are shrouded in clouds. But that's not really true. It's the earth is shrouded in clouds, and we can transcend that. And when we transcend the cloudiness that is a very um, uh, thin cloud cover, relatively speaking, to the rest of outer space, and we see a thin cloud cover very, very close to our planet Earth, and all we have to do is take the airplane just above that, and we see vast space and, and infinite space going all the way to the sun and the solar system and our galaxy and beyond, the cloud cover is really over us. The cloud cover is not over the rest of the universe, is not on the sun, obviously. And so that's really the the imagery that that we would invoke when we when we think about the prophet describing God being covered in a cloud. It's really only from a human perspective. And then the Rambam wants to point out that even the events at Mount Sinai, the greatest revelation of God to human beings, is also described as a day of obscurity, of clouds, mist, and light rain. This is uh, Shirat Devorah, the Song of Deborah, from the Book of Judges. Um, and it's clear from the context that Deborah begins her song of thanksgiving after having won the battle against Sisera and his army. Uh, she says, Hashem Adom, that God, when you came from Seir and you came from the fields of Edom, and according to our sages, this is where God had offered the Torah to other nations. Eretz ra'asha gam shamayim natafu gam avim natfumayim. The whole earth shook, the heavens dripped forth, and the clouds dripped forth with water. That's where we see this idea of light rain. Harim nazlu mipnei Hashem, zesinai mipnei Hashem elokei Yisrael. And of course, the mountains dripped forth because of God. This was Sinai in the presence of the God of Israel. So it's clearly a depiction of Mahmad Har Sinai. The commentaries grapple with why Deborah, in the introduction to her song of thanksgiving, has to invoke the memory of Mount Sinai. But you can you can easily conjecture that she wanted to show her appreciation uh, to the God who had given them the Torah, that gave them the fortitude to be able to win the battle. Now, the question, of course, is what's the significance of light rain? We understand the idea of clouds and mist being a, an obscuring um, feature of the events at Mount Sinai. The, 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 the weather conditions really were indicative of the fact that despite the great level of revelation that was taking place, there was still some obfuscation of God. The Jewish people still could not get a clear glimpse or a clear apprehension of God. Uh, it was only through the, the mist of the weather. Shem Tov also suggests, and as do other commentaries, that the idea of light rain is that sometimes rain or water is compared to Torah or compared to clarity. And so it represents the very, very few select people who are able to actually draw in the water of Torah in, its, in all of its completeness at the time of Mahmud Har Sinai. I'm not sure whether that the Rambam would agree with that, uh, with that analysis, but I thought I would put it out there. But the Rambam then concludes by saying that this cloudiness, this sort of obscurity, is not reflective of the darkness surrounding God, for near him may he be exalted. There is no darkness, but perpetual, dazzling light, the overflow of which illumines or illuminates the darkness. And so, um, again, I go back to that analogy of flying above the cloud cover in the air in the 747 and realizing that the entire universe is not cloudy at all. 
but rather there's just sun, there's just sunlight and a perpetual dazzling light. That's the idea of when, uh, when a person realizes that the closer to Hashem they become, the greater the illumination, then they realize that this idea of the cloud is only vis-a-vis -vis man, it is not at all vis-a-vis -vis God. And then the Rambam concludes by quoting a verse from Ezekiel chapter 43, which he says is consistent with Ezekiel's comment about his earlier vision of Ma'asei Merkava. And the reason why we point that out is because if we look at the context, even though this is 43 chapters after Ma'asei Merkava, after the vision of the chariot, but nonetheless, look at look at the context of the chapter. The, the, the prophet says, el hashar shar asher that God in a vision brought me to the gate of the temple. God's glory was coming from the eastern path, the rabim, and his voice was like the, a, a, a huge torrent of water, and the earth was illuminated from his glory. That's the point that the Rambam is trying to communicate. But he's but the prophet also connects it to the act of the chariot that we were learning about in the first seven chapters. This is the same vision that I had when I came to destroy the city, not in, not in the context of what we're talking about now. And it was the same kind of vision that I saw in Nahar Kivar. Nahar Kivar is the, is the uh, vision that Ezekiel had in Ezekiel chapter 1, the Maasei Merkava. So what Ezekiel is basically saying is that I had the clarity of vision of being able to see God's chariot system, the terrestrial realm covered by the celestial realm, covered by the divine realm, uh, with the throne of God, as it were, um, and I fell on my face. So describing that as great illumination, as great clarity of vision, really really uh, puts to rest the the suggestion that God is in any way uh, entsh enshrouded with mystery or 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 cloudiness it's rather man and God is absolute clarity so and the the, re the source for that obscurity the source for man's cloudy vision is because man is a material being and anyone who's a material being or a composite of both material and form by virtue of the fact of their material side is not going to be able to comprehend things which are divested of matter, um, including God. So that is our disadvantage. And uh, apparently, because God is the creator of matter and form, and God wanted our universe to be this way, he wanted man to exist in a realm of obscurity, this is part of God's plan that he wants man to not be able to have a full, clear vision of God. And this is all part of the discussion of free will and why it is that man uh, finds himself confused throughout his lifetime, never being able to feel that he's really reached ultimate truth and that he feels in his mind that it's just outside his grasp, that there's a cloud cover that prevents me from transcending this cloudiness and reaching the clarity of vision that I know that is out there. That's the feeling that a material being has throughout his existence. And the reason for that is because God made us that way, because if we had greater a greater sense of clarity, man would not have free will. 
it would be so uh, obvious to him as to what choices to make and to, uh, to, to serve God. And we will come back to this topic again and again as to why man does not have clarity of vision. Okay, let's go on to chapter 10. Um, in chapter 10, the Rambam reviews for us an incorrect philosophical view of a, a, a group of philosophers that were his contemporaries known as the Mutakalimun, or the Kalamists. And we had spent a huge amount of time at the end of section one of the guide discussing the philosophy of Kalam. The Kalamists were atomists and they believed that the world is comprised of very, very small particles that coalesce and become the, th the, the, the material things that we find in our world. And they also believe that God is constantly creating and recreating at every single moment. One of the uh, things that the Rambam says, I must disagree with the Kalamists that I would like to bring up at this point, has to do with uh, their view on the various different properties of material things in this world. Okay, and so let us, he says, review the incorrect view of the Mutakalimun, who view all privations as deliberate created attributes or properties. Um, and what, we're, what, what the Rambam is pointing out here is something that we learned quite explicitly in chapter 73 of section one of the guide. And I have it here using the Friedlander translation because I was able to easily cut and paste it. I'd like to review it with you. And before we do that, um, is to try and help us understand where we're going with this. Um, the Mutakalimun believed that both the good and the bad are creations of God. So it, a person who was sighted is granted sight by God. A person who is blind is granted blindness by God. A person who is alive is granted the state of living by God. A being who is dead is granted the state of death from God. Now you contrast that with the Rambam's Aristotelian view, and the Rambam says no, there are not dual attributes or properties, what, he, what Pines translates as a habitus, but rather there is only one property, it's sightedness, the ability to see. And the privation of that, or the removal, or the, or the taking away, or the absence of that sightedness, is what we call blindness. There is light, and the absence of light is dark. There is life, and the absence of life is death. But there's not two properties, right? And the Mutakalimun strongly have a different view, dis disagree with that completely. Their view is, is that since God is constantly creating reality at every split second, everything that exists, even negative things, are creations of God. Now, there's a certain truth the Rambam concedes to that point of view, but it's not really accurate. And the reason why it's not accurate is because if God is the creator of all, and God is ultimately good, then God only creates that which is good. God does not create that which is bad or evil. And if we look at privations, if we look at things that are the removal of good things, then we cannot directly associate those things' existence to God's creation. Okay, the only thing which the Mutakalimun acknowledges privation and not an active attribute or property is absolute non-being. 
In other words, when something does not exist anymore, the Mutakalimun acknowledge that, that, that God did not create that state of non-being. It just simply doesn't exist. But if something exists and it has a negative attribute, such as darkness, blindness, deafness, <laughs> we can use that word, then God has, is, has imbued and is constantly imbuing that negative property within that object or organism. And this harkens back to the Ramam's depiction of this view back in chapter 73. So let's learn that quickly. Let's review that. The, the Rambam is in the midst uh, in chapter 73 of telling us a number of different what he calls propositions of the Mutakalimun of this competing philosophy that he disagrees with. Um, and, he, and the seventh proposition of the Mutakalimun is as follows. The absence of a property is itself a property that exists in the body, a something super added to its substance, an actual accident, which is constantly renewed. The word accident means a, a, an incidental attribute, such as its color, its texture, its size, etc. As soon as it is destroyed, it is reproduced. And the Mutakalimun believe that God is constantly God is constantly destroying and, re, and reproducing on a constant basis. The reason why they hold this opinion, says the Rambam, is this. They do not understand that rest is the absence of motion. Death is the absence of life. Blindness is the absence of sight. And that all similar negative properties are the absence of the positive correlatives. The relation between motion and rest according, is, according to their theory, the same as the relation between heat and cold. Now here the Rambam believes that both hot and cold are positive properties. It, there's nothing, it's not like we believe in science today that cold is the absence of heat. In medieval science, the belief was that you imbue uh, some an agent imbues something with either heat or cold. So it's different from light and dark from the medieval point of view. Namely, as heat and cold are two properties found in two objects which have the properties of heat and cold, so motion is an accident created in the thing which moves, and rest an accident created in the thing which rests. It does not remain in existence during two consecutive time atoms, as we have stated in treating of the previous position. We're not going to dwell on that point right now. Accordingly, when a body is at rest, God has created the rest in each atom of that body. And so long as the body remains at rest, God continually renews that property. God is constantly recreating that state of rest. The same, they believe, is the case with a man's wisdom and ignorance. The latter, ignorance, is considered by them an actual accident, meaning an actual attribute or property that is imbued with the, uh, within the organism by God, which is subject to the constant changes of destruction and creation, so long as there remains a thing of which such a man is ignorant. Death and life are likewise accidents, and as the Mutakalimun distinctly state, life is constantly destroyed and renewed, during the whole existence of a, of a living being. When God decrees its death, he creates in it the accident of death or the, the, um, the property or the attribute of death after the attribute of life, which is, does not continue during two time atoms, has ceased to exist. All this they state clearly. The logical consequence of this proposition is that the attribute of death created by God 
instantly ceases to exist and is replaced by another death creation, which again is created by God. Otherwise, death could not continue. In other words, if you are a Kalamist and you believe that God is constantly creating and recreating everything that exists, and a, 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 you, you see in front of you a corpse, it turns out that that corpse is constantly be, being recreated and that God is imbuing the attribute of death within that corpse. Not that it's just a, 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 an organism that is absent of life, but it has an actual or positive attribute of death. Death is thus continually created in the same manner as life is renewed every moment. That's what the Mutakalimun maintain. The Rambam is having none of that. He says, one of my challenges that I have to the Mutakalimun is I would wish to know how long it continues to create death in a dead body. Does he do so while the form remains or while one of the atoms exists? In other words, how much does the body have to decompose to be st still be supervised by God and being imbued with the property of a dead being. For in each of the atoms of the body, the accident of death which God creates is produced, and there are to be found teeth of persons who died thousands of years ago. We, say, we see that those teeth have not been deprived of existence, and therefore the accident of death has during all these thousands of years been renewed, and according to the opinion prevailing amongst those theorists, death was continually replaced by death at every moment okay and he goes on and on with this with this polemic against the the kalamist position the point being is that the rambam does not believe that there are both positive and negative actual attributes that god imbues within in within each organism god imbues an organism with a, what we would call a positive attribute or property and when that property is removed, then there's a privation of that property, not the imbuing of a different property. So according to this erroneous doctrine, says the Rambam in our chapter, God makes blind, makes deaf, and causes that which moves to rest. For these privations are to their minds existent things. The Rambam's opinion, by contrast, is in line with Aristotle, that privations are an indirect result of a mover, but are not existent things. So Aristotle, again, says that you can have someone who is in charge of creating and moving things. Aristotle doesn't use the term creating, but he says that, that there is a supreme being who is in charge of moving, a prime mover. But when negative properties emerge, it is not a direct result of that mover, but rather an indirect result. What do we mean by this? So Aristotle wrote in his Acroasis, which is really the, just the Greek term for his book called Physics, that this may be compared to a person who caused a piece of wood that was resting atop of a pillar to move. And how did he get the piece of wood to move? Because he pulled the pillar. He didn't directly move the wood, but is attributed, attributed, attributed with it figuratively. It's not that God moves the wood directly or the person moves the wood directly, but by pulling something away to allow the wood to fall by its natural state of gravity, that is considered to be an indirect cause of motion of the wood. Similarly, God does not cause blindness. God removes sight, and as a result of the removal of sight, blindness sets in. But it's not even that God directly removes sight, as we'll see. God does not directly remove life either. Similarly, a person who extinguishes a lamp figuratively has brought darkness, but not really. 
In the same vein, one who destroys sight has blinded, even though darkness and blindness are privations and do not require an agent to bring them about. We say that that person caused his blindness because he subjected the person to a loss of sight uh, or to, to damage their sight, but he actually just damaged a positive property and the negative property is the privation or the lack of that positive property. This is how we can understand, he says, Isaiah's pronouncement in Isaiah chapter 45, where uh, Isaiah says that God is Yotzer or Uvore Choshech Oseh Shalom Uvore Ra. God is the former of light and the creator of darkness. He makes peace and he creates evil. Now, the difficulty with that is if I'm telling you that God is not the direct cause of evil, God is not the direct cause of darkness, how do you understand this verse in Isaiah? And the answer is, look carefully at the verbs. We have three verbs in this passage, uh, yotzer, bore, and oseh. And as will become clear from the, from the Rambam's uh, exposition here, the words yotzer and oseh are proactive and positive imbuing or uh, placing specific attributes within a within an object just like a sculptor will sculpt a statue he is the yotzer he is the former of the statue but a bore is someone who simply removes a positive attribute darkness and evil are privations which is why the verb bara is used instead of the previous verb yatsar since bara is associated with non-being now, to really flesh this out, because you're going to ask the question, what do you mean bara is associated with non-being? Doesn't the Torah begin by saying bereshit bara elokim eta shemaim ve'eta aretz? In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. How can you tell me that heaven and earth are a state of non-being if it, it is the verse that tells us that God gave rise to all of that which positively exists? Now, if you were a Kabbalist, if you were, let's say, for example, the Sefer Balhatanya, you would have a very simple answer to this question. The Balhatanya says that this world really is in a state of non-being when compared to God's existence devoid of everything else that exists, because the only true existence is God. And we have this principle in Kabbalah of Tzimtzum, of God reducing or pulling away of his true essence in order to make way for other things that are lesser than God to exist. So it is a form of privation from a Kabbalistic perspective. However, that is not the position that the Rambam is going to take. So let's go back to another previous chapter of Morin of Uchim, this time section 2, chapter 30. And there the Rambam, at the end of that lengthy chapter, chapter 30, had given us uh, a small exposition on the different verbs that are associated with creation. He said, and I quote, we must also consider the four different terms employed in expressing the relations of the heavens to God. God is called a bore, creator, an oseh, a maker, a koneh, possessor, and kale, God. We'll skip a few lines. According to my opinion, the verb yatsar denotes to make a form, a shape, or any other accident for form and shape are likewise accident. In other words, incidental properties to a thing that is a composite of matter and form. 
It is therefore said, Yotzer Or, who forms the light, light being an accident, Yotzer Harim, that forms the mountains in the book of Amos, i.e., that gave them their shape. In the same sense, the verb is used in the passage, and the Lord God, Vayitzer, Hashem Elohim, et kol asher basadeh, all the beasts that were in the field. But in reference to the universe, the heavens and the earth, which comprises the totality of the creation, scripture employs the verb bara, which we explain as denoting he produced yesh me'ayin, something from nothing, creatio ex nihilo. So the Rambam's understanding of the word bara is that it is associated in some way with non-existence, but it can be associated with non-existence in one of two ways. Either bara can mean removing a positive attribute causing privation, or it can refer to creating something out of non-being, of non-existence. And that is the reason why bara for the Rambam is an appropriate verb to use for the creation of the world, because it was created from nothing. Going back to a number of our discussions in section two, where the Rambam had demonstrated that he subscribed to a belief of creatio ex nihilo, of cre creation from absolute nothing. Even though he conceded that it was possible to read the text another way, nonetheless, he believes that the word bara is much more consistent with his depiction of a creation yesh me'ayin of something from nothing. Thus, being bore means either creating something from nothing or causing the privation of a certain attribute, such as removing light to make way for darkness. Both usages denote privation, either creation from privation or the bringing about of privation by removing a positive property. And he says, therefore, that scripture similarly attributes these privations metaphorically to God, and again, the Rambam says, do not take this literally, take it metaphorically. Because when God spoke to Moses, and Moses said, I am a stutterer and a stammerer, I am not going to be a good representative for you, God's response to Moses was, Mi sampela adam, who places a mouth within man, o mi asum ilem, or who places muteness within man, o cheresh, o fikeach, o iver, or creates deafness, or the ability to uh, to be uh, intelligent or to be blind. Hello, Anochi Hashem. Behold, I am the Lord. I am responsible for both the creation of sight, for the creation of blindness, for the creation of intelligence, and for the creation of dumbness. So one can either understand this in its metaphorical sense, and that's the simple way that the Rambam approaches that verse. Or, says the Rambam, you can also appreciate that when the verse says that God creates those things, even the negative attributes or properties, one can understand that it refers to God as the creator of matter in general. Since matter is subject to corruption and change, which is what causes dumbness, deafness, and blindness, one can also say that because God created matter, he is responsible for the privations that matter manifests due to that matter's inability to receive a particular property. And as we've explained before from chapter 8, since matter is responsible for all privation, for all corruption and breakdown and the lack of being able to receive form, God is ultimately the creator of a material uh, that is incapable of receiving form. And as a result, 
if let's say a, a child is tragically born with a congenital defect of blindness, we would not say that God created the blindness, but God did give creation or, or give rise to the creation of a child's matter, which is not capable of sightedness. And as a result, God is indirectly responsible for that child's blindness. Now you see where this is going. We're talking about the existence of evil and defect and flaw within a world that is supposed to be a, a product of God. How then is God the perfect God? How is he able to produce or give rise to imperfection, flaw, and evil? And we're, we haven't really defined the word evil yet. We will shortly. But this is like saying, and I quote, that one who is able to save an individual from perishing and refrains from saving him may be said to have killed him. In other words, if I see a drowning person and I could easily just stick out my hand and save them and I neglect to do so, I have in a sense killed them, but not in the positive proactive way in that just as the person could have saved the drowning person, God could have created a more perfect substance of matter that did not possess this inability to receive certain properties. And so it's not a perfect analogy, obviously, because the person walking by the drowning person is doing nothing, but his doing nothing is also saying of God that he gave rise to um, matter that does not have the ability to assume a more perfect form. And so in that way, God is somewhat indirectly responsible for defect and flaw, but is not the direct product, not the direct agent of it. It has therefore become clear to you that, and we're quoting from the end of the chapter, according to every opinion, whether that's the opinion of the Aristotle or whether it's the opinion of the Mutakalimun, the act of an agent can in no way be connected with privation. Um, because even the Mutakalimun acknowledged that absolute non-existence is not through agency. They do believe that blindness and death and darkness are a product of God, but absolute nothingness, absolute privation, everyone agrees, is not the product of an agent, of a creator, of a mover. The agent can only be said to have produced the privation by accident or indirectly, as we have explained. So why is it so important for the Rambam to say that evil or that darkness is a privation of light? Because this is the Rambam's opening uh, introduction to God's association with evil. Evil is a privation and is not a direct agency from God, as will be explained. I do want to point out, and we're going to continue this chapter next time, but we're out of time. We will get to section two. The whole concept of evil as a privation of good has a very, very rich and long history that far predates the Rambam. Goes back to, uh, to Plotinus, then to Christian theology, Augustine, Boethius, and many other uh, philosophers in the earlier medieval uh, period. And we're going to see how the Rambam develops this idea and how he necessarily develops this idea. I guess the last thing that I would wanna say on this subject is, I want you to consider that the Rambam is not approaching this from a moralistic point of view, but rather is trying to understand God and the way that he interacts with our universe. And it is in that context that he is trying to explain that God indirectly produces evil, but is not the direct agent of evil. Not because of the uh, theodicy questions, not because of the morality questions of God, 
um, but rather because of the nature of God. And that is really the theme of the Mora. We in order to, for us to attach to God, we have to understand him in the best way possible. I'll leave it at that for now, but that really should open up our discussion for next week when we talk about the remainder of chapter 10, where the Rambam talks about the existence of evil. I hope that's uh, good enough for you for today. We do hope to continue uh, Be'ezrat Hashem next week. And thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.